it wasn't just a question of thinking about it. It was actually, there's no time to think, we just need to do. In lieu of no street sales, how are we going to get money to vendors? In lieu of no street sales, how are we actually going to run a sustainable business? Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We are the Media Focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That clip you just heard was from my interview with Paul Chiu, Group CEO at The Big Issue. After 18 years at Time Inc. in the UK, Paul worked with The Big Issue as a consultant through the first lockdown, joining the magazine full-time in November. We spoke about the shock the lockdown caused the Big Issue community, but also the incredible innovation that it has sparked. Before that, though, we're going to begin with our news roundup, and there's really only one story that we could talk about this week, which is a statement from the Society of Editors in light of what the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have termed racist abuse from the press. So, God, I think maybe the best thing to do is if we just go through this chronologically and we try to keep our emotions out to begin with, what do you think? Yeah. So once upon a time, that. Harry met Meghan. <laughs> yeah. There was a prince. Who was saved from his family by a princess. Um, so yeah, effectively, Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, went on and they, they did an interview with Oprah uh, in the US, which we're not going to go into the specifics of it now. You can watch the interview or you can read edited highlights. A lot of it is completely abhorrent. Um, well, they, they also said that one of the, main reasons they left was the the sheer volume of abuse the british press had given them yeah, yeah. that's that's the real point that's the family things a whole other story <laughs> yeah absolutely the press yeah. aspect of this is a point as you'd expect this prompted a a period of self-reflection from the uk press oh no it didn't it actually, um, <laughs> we saw uh, the society of editors uh, issue a what press gazette termed robust statement and the term <laughs> robust there is doing an awful lot of work basically saying that um the UK media is not bigoted and will not be swayed from its vital role holding the rich and powerful to account following the attack on the press by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. It said it was not acceptable for the couple to make claims of racism in the press without supporting evidence. Um, so that went out. Ian Murray then went on uh, breakfast television to defend this. He did not come across well, didn't speak to the idea that there was any self-reflection going on whatsoever. That then prompted a pushback from other members of the UK media, so notably Jess Brammer and Janine Gibson, and a couple of other women editors pushed back and basically said that the letter did not represent their views and that there is widespread acknowledgement that sections of the UK media are bigoted or at least profit from bigotry. Then, more than 160 journalists of colour objected to the statement in an open letter, which then cited lots of evidence... Uh, that the UK media is effectively inherently bigoted in a lot of ways. And the Society of Editors was reported to be in turmoil over this statement. That is about two days' worth of news I mean, at this the, point. The irony is you could walk down to any any supermarket any day this week and you could, you could see the racism playing out on the front pages mm. at the same time that they're saying, oh, we're not racist, and just the attacks. It was just horrendous. It was. It was awful. I mean, we, we can get into that later on because there is a lot of soul searching that needs to be done here and I think we're all in agreement that sections of the British media yeah and sorry, and we're, we can name we're them, on name Tuesday, and yeah exactly yeah timeline. <laughs> so on Wednesday there was clarification by the Society of Editors board saying 
Our statement did not reflect what we all know, that there is a lot of work to be done in the media to improve diversity and inclusion. We will reflect on the reaction our statement prompted and work towards being part of the solution. And then Ian Murray then resigned to let the organisation rebuild its reputation. Uh, his position was untenable at that point, really, wasn't it? Definitely. I, I mean, I think what's not what you're not, <laughs> the kind of sounds off, if you like, is all the people on social media and in you know in all sorts of places and from all sorts of backgrounds saying, "What are you on? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is absolutely deny. You're in denial." It's the ultimate sort of head in the sand manoeuvre for this. I think an important thing to say about this is that. Uh, and Alison Gow, who's the president of the Society of Editors, thanked Ian Murray for his work uh, on behalf of the society, leading campaigns for journalists' rights and freezes. I, I, he's. I don't think he's a bad guy. I, I think he's probably done a lot of good. He just really, really, really called this absolutely wrong. Well, he was, he was trying to defend. As I, loads of people have said, he was trying to defend the indefensible. Yeah, there's a, there's an aspect here where the UK media is particularly bad about just closing ranks yeah. and not accepting mm. any criticism of any of any part of the media, as though we're sort of this undifferentiated whole, and it's it's, Actually, it's bad that's, optics. That's what's bugged me about a lot of the coverage, and and that includes from Harry and Meghan as well as from the other side, is that it everybody is lumped together. Yeah. Um, and you, you've got you've got members of the press and you've got sections of the press that are doing really, really good work in this area yeah. that then be, sort of being lumped together with, you know, the Daily Mail's front page about the way Megan's holding her baby bump. Oh, yeah. And it, it, you know, all that sort of thing. And I think it's it's difficult to offer criticism of the press as a lump when they aren't like, there, there is so much differentiation within it. Yeah, certainly. And uh, in fact, in the aftermath of this, I was really disheartened to see that you know, when, when Jess Brammer actually said, we disagree with this, she said, it's not going to make me very popular to say this. You know, it's not going to make me popular among my peers. And there was a widespread acknowledgement that she was potentially even harming her career opportunities by calling out sections of the UK media, by which we mean the Sun, the Mail, the Express are the worst offenders. As Esther said, if you lump everybody together as a whole, if you're not calling out the individual titles that are doing this, there's not going to be any progress made. Yeah, and I think after, like even even in the last sort of couple of months, the work HuffPost have been doing with their, um, you know, because they teamed up with Black Ballad last year, didn't they? Yeah. And they did the campaign about Black Mothers. And I'm, I'm not saying that that solves all the problems by any means, but we, in criticising certain parts of the press, we also need to acknowledge the work that others have done. She says from a position of inherent privilege. but well, <laughs> Also, it's not just... You know, it's not just the HuffPost or Black Ballad or, or you know people that you know that you you look to to as for leadership in these issues. When you, you remember uh, when Gary Jones took over the Express, mm. he actually said, like, you know, he's the editor of the Express. He said that certain of the paper's front pages were downright offensive, made him very uncomfortable and contributed to Islamophobic sentiment. Now, that how does the Society of Editors not remember that? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? F rights and wrongs of this society, I'm just staggered by the the, the level of... Denial. I'm trying to think of the right word, yeah. De denial is one, but there's actually a But it's, it's like politically stupidity. expedient. Yeah, there is, but it's like politically expedient denial. It's people sort of recognising, oh, you know what, I think my career will be halted if I acknowledge this. 
Um, I think to say that there was no evidence, to say there's no, there evidence, no evidence, yeah. And then, you know, that that the, there was this open letter. How it must feel. We're, the three of us are white. Imagine how it must feel to be like somebody who isn't white, who's working in this industry, to suddenly see that. And I've yeah. seen so many testimonies Absolutely. from people on Twitter this week basically saying, look, here is a tangible example of racism that I have experienced myself either when covering the news or as part of you know my own job. So racism directed at me. To suddenly see somebody say, who's nominally, you know, what representative of the UK media, how oh, yeah. are you going to get people into the industry? A lot of people have just said they're just they're just tired. Yeah, they're really tired at this point. There was a there was a fantastic piece. Um, Michelle Manaphy, friend of Media Voices, retweeted it, basically saying, you know, it's bad for business to not be representative of your audience, and to 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 say, oh, you know, we're actually only targeting the white portions of the UK. You're gonna lose audiences. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's what some of these titles are actually doing. That's why we we talk about, uh, you know, is the is the UK media bigoted? Mm. Well, the UK is kind of bigoted at points. There are a lot of bigots in the UK, and and you know the cynical aspect of this is the press is just exploiting that. Yeah, for profit. Well, I think if pe- people as a whole is yeah, it's, a, it's an unfortunate. Fact of the human condition. Yeah, but then it's like you definitely, but you shouldn't be indulgent. If, and I think Peter's right yeah. that it's cynical because if you look at sort of online coverage from the Sun Mail Express, it's often less obviously racist yeah. because they recognise that those audiences are younger, are more likely to care about this kind of stuff, and so that the print product then effectively adds like a comfort blanket for scared bigots. Although and it's very talk, talking of um, talking of indulging, there, there was a silver lining this week in that Piers Morgan has finally <laughs> gone a yeah. step too far and has been. And it looks like it was actually he was booted rather than um, sort of yeah. parting of the ways. Was so like yeah, forty one thousand complaints. They yeah, finally they finally said enough is enough, and that he cannot say anything he wants to say. Without yeah. I mean, that, that's, people. that's the other side of this is that you know I'm saying that there's that the UK is, is a bigoted society, but again, that's a real split in the UK. There's loads of people in the UK that are absolutely not bigoted, and those are the ones that are complaining about Piers Morgan's dipshit comments about mental health and whatever else. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not saying we're a bad country. I'm just saying there are bigoted elements in this country that are being exploited. Yeah, hope to God that this actually does then lead to some structural change. I, I seriously doubt it because the associated newspapers are already pe- pressing back. Uh, they've written to broadcasters, including CBS, to demand a retraction for headlines which they claim have been taken out of context to imply racism. <laughs> I mean, some some of the comments they made are actually fair enough because there's some there's some pretty bad misrepresentation in that. But read that fucking room. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, effectively, you know, we've gone through the timeline now. We've we've had our say on it. But the the real question is, what are the solutions to this? But I think that's why this was so bizarre because I think there was certainly elements of the media were moving this in a positive direction you know one of the best comments best pieces that i saw written about this was by nadine white who is the independent newly appointed race correspondent so there you go mm-hmm. maybe a small thing but the independent is doing something positive in this area yeah she's a great journalist she's done some great work at HuffPost before They've taken a, 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 and made a, a ra- the race correspondent for a national paper. That's a good thing. 
But you yeah. know, she said she her take on this one was that the damage has been done and it felt like a step backwards, and that is why I think so many people were just like, "What?" Well, the the open letter said. The Society of Editors should have used the comments by the Sussexes to start an open and constructive discussion about the best way to prevent racist courage in future, including through addressing lack of representation in the UK media, particularly at senior levels. The blanket refusal to accept that there is any bigotry in the British press is laughable, does a disservice to journalists of colour and shows an institution and an industry in denial. And you know what, that, that opening sentence, that, that should apply to every single media business, is that they need to use these comments to look at them to look internally and look at themselves and say are we doing the best we can or do we actually need to start conversations within our own organizations what was your you you had something that you wanted to flag up at the end of this one yeah so as of friday um the duke and duchess of sussex are actually putting their money where their mouth is and they are giving um a, a bit of money to race and mental health charities um so a massive massive congratulations to press pad who mm-hmm. have actually been a beneficiary of that and they are that you know they're all the organisations they've chosen to give to are kind of small organisations doing a lot of work at the bottom end to get um, more more diverse reporters in journalism, which is fantastic. So I think that's a good thing. And is okay. anybody going to dare take me down on this? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that press pads getting money. Absolutely not. But the, the institutions that support this, are, it's part of the problem here. You know, whether that's the monarchy or whether it's the celebrity industrial complex. <laughs> are you um, are you conflating your hatred for celebrity with this charitable well, endeavour? On a personal level, I have massive sympathy for for both you know, Harry and Meghan or whatever, but the institutions that they belong to, whether that is the celebrity complex or the monarchy, are absolutely just out of control and and talk about defunding the police defund the friggin monarchy defund the celebrities but also all of that is driven by the press so as much as i think it's nice that they gave money to press pad they probably spent more on their shoes i think actually we should probably i mean god that was cynical peter (laughs) but we should probably give a a shout out actually to olivia krellin here who founded press pad um And who I'm going to quote here from a tweet from uh, Corinne Podger, who basically said, huge congratulations, um, in particular to Olivia Crellon, who bootstrapped Presspad with her life savings to build a more diverse UK media landscape. What a woman. And just couldn't agree more. Unbelievable work there. Nice positive ending for that segment. And now on to the news in brief, and unfortunately it's straight back to bad news because BuzzFeed's restructure of HuffPost, which it acquired last year, has got off to a brutal start. It laid off 47 HuffPost workers in the US and closed down the Canadian operation entirely. Only a few days later, the UK national news operation was announced that it would also be closing, which is going to leave half the editorial staff at risk of redundancy. Uh, women are disproportionately affected by that um, UK closure. And unfortunately, Jess Brammer, who did such good work earlier in the week, calling out that institutional bigotry, is potentially one of the people who's going to lose her job. I'm ultimately not surprised by this, but I'm really surprised by the timing. In what way? It just came so quick after that acquisition. Yeah. Because um, they, they, they've now got no news presence in the UK at all again, have they? Because they, they shut down BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed yeah. News UK last year. It's just, I suppose, it, it, you know, from Peretti's point of view, although he's come off so badly from this. Yeah, he has. It's been he, mess handled again. He's such such a wanker. Um, <laughs> hey. he, 
Calling it like we see it. Well, how, how can you do that? I mean, all the lip service to the idea that news is, you know, a fundamental requirement of a functioning society and to suddenly do this. You don't get a, a million dollar organization back to profitability by cutting staff. What's a staff budget? Oh, do you know, we have, we have, this is like, we have this conversation so many times. Every time there's cuts, it's the same conversation. It's just bonkers. Oh. Yeah. And in other news, US legislators have reintroduced a bill called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, basically kind of taking the lead from Australia here. And the idea of that act is that it's going to allow news outlets to collectively negotiate with Google and Facebook and other tech giants. So this has been submitted before. It was submitted in 2018 and 2019, but they're looking to add more around dispute resolution and also some bits to specifically help smaller publishers rather than just benefiting the big ones. So, yeah, <laughs> wait and see some more details before commenting on that. And speaking of the goggles, um, that's, I, this one is, I just I don't know how to even talk about this anymore. <laughs> so the cookies are going away. The goggles keep coming up with solutions for the, their privacy sandbox that's going to help deal with that. Um, which is basically about ad targeting, cross-site tracking, blah, 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 blah. They keep coming up with stuff. And there's this huge kind of fight developing over Google basically just <laughs> basically just gaming the system to take control of the ad market. Oh, that's this, unexpected. This new one that they've announced is for cross-site tracking. Um, it's designed to help publishers after their third-party cookies have gone, and it's called, are you ready? I'm ready. Publisher Provided Identifiers, or PPIDs, in the Google Ad Manager. That goes alongside Flocks, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. And now now Peter's going to explain how PPIDs work. I have no clue whatsoever. <laughs> so the information is launching five new email newsletters spanning topics around business, finance, and tech. They're also looking to refresh and formalize existing newsletters as part of a wider strategy. The newsletter boom continues. I'm just slightly surprised that they haven't done anything like this already but anyway mm. and the big issue is launching a subscription video on demand service so big issue tv will focus on socially conscious political cultural and environmental documentaries for a monthly subscription fee of 3.99 slightly surprised at this find out more in my interview with paul chill <laughs> in about a minute and a half This week I spoke to the Big Issue CEO, Paul Chiu. We talked about the magazine's fight to survive lockdown, the innovations that got it through, and how those changes have spurred new ways of thinking about how the Big Issue will work in the future. But first I asked Paul how he ended up at the Big Issue. So I guess uh, my, my story in media started really um, after I came out of university. So I went to uh, Manchester University at the right time in terms of music scene. I was always obsessed with music. And I went back to my hometown of Brighton, convinced that I was going to be a true renaissance man. So I was uh, a promoter. I was managing a band. And I was also freelancing on the local newspaper. And I was kind of managing this uh, and kind of staving off the bank manager and my student loan for as long as I possibly could. And then the bank manager called up with me and I needed to get a kind of, you know, proper in inverted commas job. And I ended up a, a kind of a bit of an outpost of United Newspapers, as it was called at the time, uh, working in marketing. And then I moved on to a couple of other smaller publishers, did some interesting things and then ended up at IPC. And I was the publisher of the rather glamorous Outdoor and Hobbies portfolio is where my life started at IPC. 
for younger people, IPC became Time Inc. became TI Media. But at the time, IPC was uh, a kind of beacon of hope for all young publishers because it was known as the Ministry of Magazines. And if you got to publish at IPC, you kind of you'd made it. It, it was a, it was a real badge. So it, I then spent 18 years at IPC and I, I ran several portfolios and then I went to work uh, in the centre of the business, uh, principally on digital projects. So looking at how uh, across the piece we could start to scale. Uh, things like digital magazines, but how we could actually build better web properties across everything that we did. When was that? So this would have been seven years ago now, I mm. guess. I'm terrible on time, but it would have been, yeah. <laughs> well, even more so now. But yes, yeah, exactly right, because time has no meaning. Uh, but before that, I'd, I'd been the publishing director of Enemy. So the, the full circle for me was that early full circle was that obsession with music, coming out of university, working media, getting to IPC, and ending up as you know running the enemy at that time there was this major onus on the enemy which was uh, print circulation was actually doing really well we had a great editor Connor McNicholas but we were just starting to feel that impact of digital so it was that first time where by dint of the audience so a young audience that were very quick to engage with digital and rapidly move platforms so we had that existential threat about what's the enemy going to be going forward there'd already been work on digital but it hadn't actually needed that central thrust so when I moved to a more central uh, at IPC, Stroke Time Inc., it was to take some of that digital learning and trying to apply it across the rest of the business. And the end result of that was actually I ended up on the main board at Time Inc. Uh, and I, my focus was really looking at, um, I guess you might call distressed markets. So markets where we were really feeling the impact of digital. So that this would have been uh, celebrity, young fashion and back on music and how we could take you know, quite well-established brands and actually do something more relevant to them so that you know they weren't just bound up in a print world. There was a chance for those brands to cross over onto different platforms and actually have, have a chance of surviving. I exited Time Inc. when Time Inc. was bought by Private Equity. I was quite happily doing some consultancy. I was consulting for the likes of Eurostar, Citizens Advice, uh, band lab technologies who ended up buying enemy uh, and then i started consulting for the big issue and it was i was uh on a voluntary basis i was chair of the media side of big issue and then i was consulting to the main board uh one day a week just about you know what could a future media business look like yeah. and then come the 18th of march i think it was 18th of march it should be emblazoned in my brain which was which was lockdown it was like that became a much you know, more real question, yeah. what is the future of this media business going to look like? And so I, I then moved from one day a week to three days a week, although I was actually spending a lot more than the three days a week, if I'm honest, thinking about this problem. And it, was, it wasn't just a question of thinking about it. It was actually, there's no time to think, we just need to do. Yeah. So what in, in, in lieu of no street sales, how are we going to get money to vendors? In lieu of no street sales, how are we actually going to run a sustainable business? So I guess there were two facets to that. One is uh, in order to get money to vendors, uh, we will need to raise money, corporate money, consumer money, and we'll actually need to uh, reinvent our, our media business as well. So quick migration to subscriptions, um, which we did in a, and there was obviously you know, in the role that I was in, there's a big focus on cash flow too. So our, our initial take on subscriptions was three months, that's probably the time that this whole thing is going to last because who really knew at the time how long this thing was going to last. Uh, and people who normally buy from a vendor will use the subscription as a proxy for that weekly transaction. Mm -hmm. 
And within four weeks, we had 9,000 subscribers, which was really fantastic because that was a great sanity check on us continuing to publish the magazine because we could have easily pulled the plug. We could have said, it's crazy to publish at this time. We can't get the magazine out on the streets. Uh, let's furlough the whole editorial team. Let's mothball this thing and let's come back in six months. But, you know, the, the great shame of that would have been the fact that the big issue is really about impact. It's about impact on people's lives. And we would have lost that route to market. From this end of the telescope, it looked, I mean, that looks like a very sensible decision. What was the conversation around that? Well, the, the conversation around it was what's a way to generate cash flow. And selling three month subscriptions up front was definitely a way to generate cash flow. What's a way to try and generate an immediate um, circulation for this so we can, to some extent, keep selling advertising? We can still still keep trading. Uh, and as I said, and as I said before, what is a way for us to show, look, you know, the big issue, we're not going to go away because actually the impact of COVID is an accelerator in terms of the issues that vulnerable people face. So it was absolutely integral to us that vendors could see that our intention was to keep going and that we would come out of this. And as we came out of this, we'd be there for them and we'd be still producing a magazine for them to sell. I think that's one of the things that gets forgotten that people rightly take the subscriptions i think to make sure that the vendors are getting an income but it was also about keeping the operation going yeah and uh, that's why subscriptions really were only one part of the puzzle because you know as we're developing a subscriptions business we're looking around us and thinking other routes to market the big issue has never been sold at retail before so it's never been on the newsstand so we immediately, um, you know, I, I guess a bigger part of this is when you're in this sort of crisis, you realize just how good your network is and who your friends are. <laughs> uh, so we immediately called upon Market Force, uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Adrian Hughes, who kind of helped us get to market uh, with the major supermarkets as quickly as possible. And we really went on the supermarkets from a kind of almost corporate social responsibility perspective to say, yeah come on, you've got to help us out. We need promotional space. We need listings. We need preferential terms. It, pretty much each supermarket did that. And we got listings pretty quickly. So within four, six weeks, we've got, we're up to eight or 9,000 subscriptions and we're putting 10,000 copies into newsagents. Yeah. Then the next favor in terms of like, you know, the, the, the blagging hierarchy was to think about what other ways can we get the magazine to market? Um, there was no app. So there was a digital edition via Zinio, et cetera but there was nothing that really felt like a meaningful digital experience of the big issue. And so I, I called in a favor from uh, Johnny Calder at PubPig <laughs> and uh, Johnny uh, got his team to rapidly build us, not just you know a, a box standard app, but a really good readable experience, something that really lends itself to the device. So again, we've got another tool in our armor. So now we can really start offering consumers you know, a variety of ways in which they can access the big issue all of that, though, is still skewed to the fact that 50% of the net proceeds went directly to vendors. So we're always creating this connection between we're doing all of this because we want to help you keep helping your local vendor. So that's, that was a really important thing to us. Then behind that is obviously, you know, the fact that the Big Issue website was averaging, say, let me think now, 150,000 uniques maybe in a good month. So, you know, I've come from a background where cleverer people than me have got brands like NME.com up to 14, 15 million uniques a month. So this is kind of like, so I'm looking at this thinking, this is just not enough scale. 
in very simple terms, we focused on content optimization. We made sure that we were writing about the things that people were really searching for. Uh, and we actually got our SEO strategy right. And so now when you look at thebigissue.com, we're talking about 350,000, uniques a month. Now, that, what that does is obviously gives us a much greater pool for selling subscriptions. It gives us some incremental ad revenue. I mean, you know, we all know the perils of digital when it comes to ad revenue and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But so it's not really about that. But what it really, really does, which is so important, is actually drive more impact. Because what we found during COVID is that, you know, we are we are very good at providing a business solution for vendors. A lot more vul- there's a lot more people, vulnerable people in the UK now that have been impacted by COVID, that have been back impacted by the recession. And the big issue's mission is to dismantle poverty. So it's absolutely our job to make sure that the cause of those people is being recognized as well. And one way we can do that is by having a bigger digital presence and amplifying exactly what we're doing. Do you think this is going to change the big issue in terms of how it, <laughs> it's maybe not the right phrase, but how it does business? It always had that campaigning aspect to it. That was the whole point. Yeah. But now it, there's a commercial spin there um, that I don't know. I don't know if it was there before, but it certainly wasn't talked about. It should certainly be within the DNA of the big issue. The big issue is a social enterprise. It's not a charity. The relationship that the big issue has has with its vendors is as a social enterprise. You know, we do not employ vendors. They buy the magazine at one pound fifty and they sell it for three quid. Now we then provide wraparound care and 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 you know welfare provision, mental health etc. provision etc. for vendors, but it's that's fundamentally a transactional relationship. So I, I think I'm very keen to kind of double down on ensuring that the big issue is seen as a social enterprise. It, it, it is about finding innovative ways to address poverty and help vulnerable people in the UK. Now, you may end up, you don't want to run that at a loss, obviously. So you may end up generating incremental revenue and even profit from that. But because we're a social enterprise, we're asset locked and dividend locked. So anything we do goes back into funding the mission. So that's the really important thing for me. I think you can be commercial, but you can also be social. And the result of that was that over the course of lockdown, you've you've distributed over a million pounds to vendors. Was it over 2,000 vendors? That's right. And that doesn't take into account, I think, about 150Ks worth of PPE that we've distributed as well. Right. And then you should take into account the, the Big Issue Foundation, which is the charitable entity uh, aligned with the Big Issue. They've then directed uh, vendors towards um, other sources of in- uh, other sources of support such as uh, fuel vouchers etc so mm. i think the impact is even greater than the million and yeah and you're right we have directly uh, provided financial support for over 2000 vendors you look at the furlough scheme where people got 80% is yeah. it the same sort of deal so it's a difficult one that because when you look at the vent you know the profile of vendors you have some vendors that only want to sell a few magazines every fortnight and then you've got some vendors who are much more commercial and they're selling 300 magazines a week. So, you know, the, the key thing has really been to ensure two key things. One is some level of guarantee financial support for any vendor that was selling for us in the run up to lockdown. And secondly, is, is just that emotional support. So mm. literally thousands of calls have taken place across the lockdowns between our frontline staff and vendors just to make sure they're okay. The real beauty of the big issue when it's back on the street 
for a vendor, yeah, it's a commercial transaction, but it's a it's a it's an emotional, visceral thing. It's it's your customers, it's the people you see every week. They're almost like you know your extended family. So that is, that's that's something that's incredibly unique within media that I can see, and something that you know we've been very very minded to try and protect and ensure that vendors have someone to talk to because they're definitely going to be missing that. Is that like a helpline, or is it guys in the office actually calling vendors? Actually calling vendors. This is, um, I mean, this is an area that we think we can also improve on going forward. It's interesting because you've got publishers talking about how they're supporting their staff through this. I saw a thing, Tom Bureau talking in the Press Gazette the other day. And that's just like that problem amplified 10 times over because they've, you know, they're all over the country and you, you have a different kind of relationship. And definitely, you know, a, a different type of vulnerability mm. for a lot of those people too. I mean, you know, yeah, the people who tend to sell the big issue, you know, you tend to come from a disadvantaged background. You may have physical health issues, mental health issues. So absolutely the job that the big issue team, the frontline team have done over the last 12 months, A, facing lockdown, B, not being able to get anywhere themselves, C, concerns about their own health, to stay in contact with those people and, you know, provide some kind of link has been amazing. Definitely. So out of all the innovations that uh, have been made through this period, what's your favourite or or what's the one that's been sort of the biggest unexpected success? I think obviously, you know, that rapid growth and subs has has set a template for us that we'll continue going forward. I mean, you know, getting to 9,000 subs within that space of time just shows really that the, the public and corporate support that the big issue enjoys and you know right so given the, the reputation it's had over 30 years i think just that kind of outpouring of public support and corporate support not not just via the, the prisoner subscriptions but just funding per se i mean you know, people have rallied around the big issue yeah. at a time when their own futures weren't secure you know they didn't have as much cash on the hip as they might possibly have had so you know that that's been obviously financially absolutely necessary but also a great vindication, I think, of just what an amazing brand the big issue is, and a great reason for why we should keep keep looking at new ways to engage with consumers, with vendors, with other vulnerable groups of people as we go forward. One of the questions I had for you was, do you think this kind of spirit of innovation is going to continue? Uh, and then I got the press release about your video on demand channel. <laughs> Um, yeah. So yes, the innovation is definitely continuing. Uh, what's the thinking behind the, the video channel? It's no more sophisticated than the fact that, you know, things that were happening before have accelerated and amplified. So the whole, you know, people's use of streaming services was already kind of, you know, going gangbusters. And it's absolutely, you know, Netflix culture is, you know, part of all of, part of, all of our lives now. And so as you get greater consumer engagement with a platform, so it makes sense that um, other other publishers will be able to follow. I think other publishers will be able to follow and adapt to that platform because what publishers are really good at is is kind of segmenting audiences, but also curating really really appropriate content for that audience. One of the perils of um, mass consumption streaming sites, I guess, which is a bit clunky, but you know what I mean, uh, is the tyranny of choice. Yeah. There's, there's so much to choose from. So, you know, the idea of Big Issue TV is that we're producing, we're providing the most relevant content. We ask you to take out a subscription on the basis that when you do so, you know that some of that money will come back to the Big Issue and, and will be used to fuel our mission. So it's another contact point, another point, point of engagement that we can offer. And I think really links into digitally what we're trying to do as well. So 
it's really important the big issue brand from a kind of also from a demographic perspective becomes much more audio-led, video-led, much more conversant with a younger audience. I think what's interesting is is the idea that uh, the big issue team is curating those videos, obviously against a, a sort of uh, that kind of social justice ethos. Um, and in that sense, it's, it's not Netflix, is it? It's something completely different. Completely different. And also, as we scale what we're doing digitally, obviously our ambition, not least because it's our 30th year this year, the big issue, our ambition is to do, produce a lot more short form and long form content. So that becomes a, another great opportunity for us to bring that content to market. Anything else in the pipeline? Anything else you can talk about? So in terms of innovation, uh, I, th- I think like lots of people, lots of people have looked at their their businesses or organisations during lockdown and thought, well, we always said that we were going to do this. Now's the time to do it. We've, you know, there's been talk about how one improves, how one makes that amazing frontline service even better for vendors and also for our frontline team to you know, make it feel like a more engaging, almost less stressful career choice. If you work in a frontline office at the big issue, you face some challenges. So one of the big things that I you know, championed in my time at Time Inc. is we built a product lab. So we built a new, new product development lab that would enable us to rapidly test new ideas and, uh, and the idea being that you, you build a proposition, uh, you build a, a minimum viable product, you test that, and if you get if you get a good market read on that, then you can take then you build the next iteration of it, et cetera, et cetera. So we're taking some of that thinking, service design thinking, and we're actually applying it to the whole of the front line. So the way we're doing it is we're you know this is the service that we currently provide for vendors nationwide. These are the bits we do really well. These are the bits that we don't currently do. How do we build a better service uh, to to meet those gaps? Are we as digitized on the front line as we possibly can be? Are we enabling vendors to have access to technology as much as they could as, as much as much as they can be? But the really, really important thing is that that service design is actually run by by the front line and the vendors themselves. So we're actually saying to them, you shape the future business. You know, it, it's not a diktat from on high. It's absolutely, you know, you have the real life experiences, you understand the frustrations and the positive elements of what we currently do. So we're asking you to shape it for us. If I can ask a more personal question, what's the difference between working for a company like Time Inc. and working for a social enterprise like The Big Issue? One doesn't end up at The Big Issue with the same mindset that one might have if you're working for a corporate like TI Media that's you know about to be acquired by a VC. The human metrics are very different, right? And what you'll find universally at The Big Issue is a bunch of people that aren't there because they think they're going to get rich. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it, they are there for, sounds rather grandiose, but they're, they're putting other people first by being there. And that's that's obviously people who work in editorial, people who work in frontline, commercial. If you come from the outside though, and if you do come from you know, a relatively rapacious capitalist <laughs> environment, then you can bring something to that because there are good bits of that as well. The good bits of that are pace. The good bits of that are learning and innovation the good bits of that are kind of discipline and kind of like you know being able to very clearly articulate we are here we need to be here here's a route to doing that this is the journey that everyone needs to go on you need to own the journey the journey is going to be big issues journey it's not going to be enemies journey or any other brand what the big issue does is incredibly special and important but let's just make sure that we can drive that impact in lots of different ways ultimately to some form of profit that then gets re- reinvested back into our mission. 
Does that make some sort of sense? Absolutely, yeah. No, and I think that that's really kind of my point. It's partly what do you bring to it, but also it's what do you get from it. Absolutely. And the way that you can do that is actually, so, you know, yeah, there's the there's the headline way of doing that, which is obviously you, you start to look at, uh, you, you look at your media proposition, you start to diversify your revenue streams, you make sure that you have as good a frontline team as possible who are really super serving vendors. And then there's the more kind of like behind the curtain sort of stuff, which is the big issue from an organizational perspective isn't as good as it could be. Mm. If I'm, you know, that, you know, being candid, this, you know, all organizations can improve. Yep. The big issue can definitely improve. So part of my role as group CEO has absolutely been around looking at the different entities. So it's not just the big issue. It's the big issue invest, which, uh, which is a le- lending and funding platform for social enterprises. It's the big issue foundation, which as we discussed, provides wraparound services for vendors. How do you actually take those three elements and from a process perspective, like from HR, finance, et cetera, et cetera, absolutely get all of those working uh, more efficiently, but also how do you kind of, uh, you know, to, to coin a phrase, how do you how do you develop trademark behaviors across an organization? So that regardless of which bit of the organization you work for, everyone understands that they are working to that, that mission. We ask all our guests, uh, for a media recommendation for our listeners, something that you've enjoyed, what would you recommend? Well, there's a great, I appreciate it might be um, a rival service, but there's a great podcast with Gary Jones on the BBC Media Show. Gary Jones, uh, editor of Daily Express. I think he's been editor for about 18 months. And he talks about the challenges of uh, taking an established brand and bringing it to a bigger market through digital, but also starting to try to change some of the perceptions of that brand. And uh He's an interesting guy because he actually come, I don't know if you know, but you know, he grew up, you know, he was a member of the Labour Party, but the Daily Express was the was the paper de jour in his household as he grew up. So he's got a, a very interesting background when it comes to someone who you kind of think, is that guy really the editor of the Daily Express? Thank you very much for listening, and please do tell anyone who you think might like a weekly news media roundup to listen to. And head over to our Ko-Fi page, which is co-fi.com slash mediavoices if you want to throw us some money to help cover our operating costs. We got a few donations this week, and every single time we were opening up our WhatsApp just to kind of squeal with excitement about it. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm getting a new microphone soon. <laughs> yeah, see, that's it. It's a sort of tangible benefit to their listeners. That's how we should sell it. And if you're in desperate need of more from Media Voices, sign up to our daily newsletter on our website, voices.media. It contains every day four of the most important media stories as curated by us, the Media Voices team, with a link, of course, to our latest episode. And all the judges have finally got their scores in for the Publisher Podcast Awards 2021. There are some standout winners among there, and basically everybody who was even involved in the shortlisting should be very, very proud of themselves. You can check out more information about that and buy tickets by going to publisherpodcastawards.com. We're trialing a pay-what-you-want system this year um, in light of lockdown, so we're sort of keen to see how this works, both academically from a sort of media memberships and subscription point of view and also because well we want to continue doing this and make it bigger and better next year well thank you very much to everyone for listening uh, we hope to see you again next week when we'll have another fantastic guest peter what are you up to for the rest of the day well this afternoon vaccination time <laughs> come on yeah i'm going to get my vaccination <laughs>